0: Vail, theme song Lionheart by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. 7. No taxation without representation. The relationship between the British government and their North American colonies slowly began to deteriorate following the French and Indian War. The war had been extremely expensive, causing the English debt to skyrocket to 122 million pounds. The interest on the debt alone was 4 million pounds a year. This was a crippling sum for the parliament to raise. When the cost of posting soldiers on the frontier was added to it, the amount of new taxes that had to be raised was staggering. The English government decided that the taxes should be paid by the American colonists. After all, the French and Indian War had been fought for them, and in all truth, the Crown blamed the colonists for starting it. Thus. A series of new taxes were issued in the colonies, starting with the Revenue Act of 1762. This act was aimed at halting smuggling and the bribery of customs officials. It worked too. By the mid 1760s, collected custom duties had increased from 2 million pounds per year to more than 30 million pounds per year. Not surprisingly, the act was not well received in America. Not only did several prominent colonists, such as John Hancock, make a good deal of money from smuggling, but the collected duties dramatically increased the cost of imported products for everyone in the colonies. To add insult to injury, the following year, the British Crown issued the Royal Proclamation of 1763, establishing landlines running roughly along the Appalachian Mountains. The proclamation forbade colonists from settling lands west of the line. By holding the colonists close to the Atlantic, the English government hoped to satisfy the Indian populations and halt the availability of cheap land. This was obviously an enormous blow to land speculators such as George Washington and his friends, who made great sums of money on those untamed lands in the West. Furthermore, by preventing westward expansion, the Crown was denying the colonists the spoils of war, a war many colonists had fought and died in. In other words, as the Crown began imposing more and more new taxes, it clearly expected the American colonists to pay the cost of the war while withholding the benefits. Next, the Parliament passed one of the most despised of the New Revenue Acts. The Stamp Act required all paper materials in the colonies to be printed on a paper produced in London and embossed with an official revenue stamp. In Boston, a young and ambitious attorney named John Adams penned a dissertation on the canon and feudal law in response to the Stamp Act. Be it remembered, he wrote, that liberty must at all hazards be supported. We have a right to it, derived from our maker. But if we have not, our fathers have earned it, and bought it for us at the expense of their ease, their estates, their pleasures, and their blood. Descended from Puritans Henry and Edith Adams, who joined the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the late 1630s, John Adams was from old Massachusetts stock. He considered his Puritan ancestors bearers of freedom, and was proud to be from a line of virtuous, independent New England farmers. His father, the Deacon John Adams, was a farmer, shoemaker, town selectman, congregationalist, and officer in the local militia. John was born and raised in a five-room farmhouse at the foot of Penn's Hill near Braintree, Massachusetts. The house was always full with mother, father, the three boys, a hired girl, plus frequent guests in the form of cousins, aunts, uncles, friends, or grandparents. Though they had come a long way, from the colony's founding over 100 years before, farm life was hard and uncertain. The growing season that far north is extremely short, and one could never be certain they would survive the long New England winter. All of this made New England farmers incredibly hardworking and frugal, and the Adams were no different. John was handsome, but short for his age, and that made him especially sensitive to criticism taught to read at home from an early age, John was a very bright student, and his father sent him to Harvard to become a minister in 1751. At Harvard, John discovered a great love of reading. In fact, he became so well-read that he could confidently discuss almost any subject that came up. Adams never received a calling from God to the ministry, and instead began an apprenticeship as an attorney. During this period, to become an attorney, one apprentice with a member of the bar and studied his books. Adams' path to the law came when he determined that he wished to become a great man with honor or reputation and more deference from his fellows. Despite the fact that most of his ancestors had served in the military, including his father, Adams chose not to seek his greatness on the battlefield as George Washington had. Thus, he declined to fight in the French and Indian War. But it bothered Adams the rest of his life that he had never served as a soldier. In 1758, Adams was admitted to the Massachusetts Bar and began his law practice. The next year, he met his third cousin Abigail for the first time. At 15, Abigail was shy and frail, having been sick as a child. She was beautiful, however, with a slender neck and dark eyes. John thought she would make a perfect portrait for the goddess Venus. But Abigail was more than a beauty. She was also extremely intelligent and strong, with a great wit, good sense, and upstanding character. Like John, Abigail was an avid reader. To John's delight, she would often quote poetry and Shakespeare. He fell hard for her. However, as a young and ambitious aspiring attorney, John was warned not to marry too early, and thus he and Abigail had a long courtship. In the meantime, John's father died in 1761, and the death hit John hard. An epidemic of influenza had ravaged the colony, especially the elderly population like the 70-year-old Deacon Adams. John's mother also caught the flu, but at 18 years younger than her husband, she survived. Adams became the head of the family, inheriting all that had been his father's, including the house and farm. John went to work on his farm with excitement and zeal. He loved the farm. He also loved the law and set up an office in the farmhouse from which he could practice in Braintree. Now a settled freeholder with a home, farm, and comfortable living, John began to think more and more about marriage. Finally, after five years of courtship, John and Abigail were married in 1764. Her mother always thought Abigail married beneath her. Just nine months later, they had their first child, a little girl they named Abigail after her mother, but called Nabby. Two years after that, they had their first son, named John Quincy, after Abigail's grandfather. They would go on to have four more children. News of Parliament's new Stamp Act reached the colonies the same year Nabby was born. The next year, John was tasked to write the instructions for the Braintree delegation to the colonial legislature regarding the act. Adams wrote that the act should be opposed as it denied two fundamental rights guaranteed to all Englishmen. The first was the right of those taxed to be taxed only by consent, stating that there must be no taxation without representation. The second was the right of a person to be tried only by a jury of his peers. Cited as a succinct defense of the rights of the colonists, these instructions soon became the model for other districts. John and his cousin Samuel Adams would soon become leaders in the resistance to British rule in Boston. Then, in 1767, the Townshend Acts were introduced by Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles Townshend, The Townshend Acts imposed duties to a host of goods imported to the colonies, such as tea, glass, paper, lead, and paint. The colonists viewed all of these new duties as an abuse of power by the British government and made agreements with one another to limit the amount of British goods being imported into America. All of the new duties, bond requirements, fines, and regulations caused a significant drain on capital in the colonies and the port cities such as Boston, Philadelphia, New York, and Charleston were the hardest hit. However, these acts did not cause a revolutionary movement in America. The colonists were still loyal subjects, but they did see it as their duty to resist what they viewed as unconstitutional abuses of power by the king and parliament. In fact, Resistance to these acts accomplished something Benjamin Franklin had longed hoped for, but which the Crown had long feared. The colonies were finally uniting. When Parliament passed the Townshend Acts, the House of Burgesses in Virginia resolved to support their brothers and sisters in New England. In response, the royal governor immediately dissolved the house. So, the House of Burgesses walked across the street and reconvened in the Raleigh Tavern. At the tavern, the House discussed which measures should be taken in their distressed situation for preserving the true and essential interest of the colony. It was decided that Virginia would boycott the British, neither buying goods nor shipping them to England. Casting his vote in favor of the boycott was a newly elected member to the House named Thomas Jefferson. Thomas was the eldest son born to Peter and Jane Randolph Jefferson. His father taught him that to be great, he had to be comfortable with authority and responsibility. Peter owned an extensive library of books, and Thomas would spend hours in the study, reading and discussing the works with his father. At just 10 years old, Peter sent Thomas into the woods with nothing but a gun and told him not to come back until he could prove that he could survive on his own. The child struggled all alone in the trees, stumbling over roots and rocks, fording streams, but finding nothing to shoot that would provide sustenance. Finally, as a tired and hungry young Thomas Jefferson was beginning to fear that he would never be able to return home, he happened upon a wild turkey caught in a pin. Thomas tied the bird to a tree and shot it. He proudly marched home with the turkey slung over his shoulder, bound for the oven. Lessons like this from his father Taught Thomas to always press on in the face of adversity and to take full advantage of unexpected gifts. If Virginia had possessed nobility, Thomas Jefferson would have certainly been part of it. While Benjamin Franklin was a first generation American, the Jeffersons' Virginia heritage went back generations. They had been some of the earliest settlers and helped carve the colony out of the forests. The Jefferson family had successfully added to their estate each succeeding generation, and by the time Thomas was born, their family lived a truly privileged life. Thomas was raised not only by his family, but also by the black slaves in the house and on the farm. In fact, his earliest memory was being handed up to a slave on horseback and carried carefully on a pillow for a long journey. Jefferson's beloved father, Peter, died in 1757, at just 45 years of age. Thus, at 14, Thomas became the man of the house. But his mother, a strong and assertive woman, really ran the house, the family, and the nearly 3,000-acre farm. In 1760, when he was 17, Jefferson traveled to the Virginia capital of Williamsburg to attend college at William and Mary. Jefferson studied there until he was 19, and then he began the study of law. Like John Adams, Thomas Jefferson studied the law by apprenticing at the office of a member of the bar and reading his law books. While in Williamsburg, Jefferson often attended sessions at the House of Burgesses. It was at one of those sessions that Jefferson was present to hear Patrick Henry give his famed oration against England's Stamp Act. Jefferson, who was embarrassed by his own oratory skills, praised Henry saying, He appeared to me to speak as Homer wrote. It was that session of the House of Burgesses that the assembly resolved, among other things, that only they had the power to lay taxes and impositions upon the inhabitants of this colony. Anyone else who tried to tax the colonists were destroying both British and American freedom. This was, of course, a radical position to take, in denying the right of the king and parliament to tax the colonists. And Jefferson was quite impressed that Henry was able to get it passed through the assembly. Proud and victorious, Patrick Henry left Williamsburg later that day. The next day, the house reversed itself, striking off the resolution while Henry was absent, teaching Thomas Jefferson a valuable lesson. Jefferson also discovered that having only one newspaper in the capital meant that nothing disagreeable to the governor could be got into it. So Jefferson helped bring Maryland publisher William Rind to Williamsburg to found the Virginia Gazette, thus establishing a second newspaper. Sadly, in the fall of 1765, Jefferson's big sister Jane died. She was his favorite. He loved her so dearly, and he was completely crushed. He decided to take a trip to get his mind off the tragedy, and that spring he left Virginia for the very first time, traveling north to see the other colonies. While on the journey, Jefferson came to understand that the Virginia cause was really the American cause, and so much bigger than he had realized. In 1767, Jefferson was admitted to the bar of the General Court of Virginia. Soon after, he began construction on Monticello, his new home just two miles from his mother's house. In seventeen sixty eight, at only twenty five years of age, Jefferson was elected to represent Albemarle County in the House of Burgesses. Upon returning home from sessions in Williamsburg, Jefferson fell head over heels in love with a wealthy widow named Martha Wiles Skelton. Known as Patty to her friends, she was a beautiful and intelligent woman with large hazel eyes and soft auburn hair. Jefferson worshipped her. Like Jefferson's mother, Patty had a mind of her own, was strong-willed and assertive. Jefferson chased after her with his full energies, writing her love poems and discussing literature with her. They both adored music and would dance and sing together while Jefferson played his violin. Finally, Jefferson won Patty's heart as she had won his, and the two were wed on January 1, 1772. He was 28, and she 23. Just over nine months later, Patty gave birth to their first child of six the two would have together. They named the girl Martha after her mother, but everyone called her Patsy. Patty had never known her own mother, and the two stepmothers she had had were both out of the picture. Her father had taken as a mistress his slave, Elizabeth Hemings, and she bore children by him. When Patty's father died, A little over a year after their marriage, she and Jefferson took in Elizabeth Hemings and her children, including Patty's half-sister, Sally. Jefferson also took over much of his father-in-law's debt. Jefferson's brother-in-law had died just a couple of weeks before Patty's father, and Jefferson had already taken his now-widowed sister and her children under his care. His responsibilities were growing considerably larger very quickly. As tensions with England continued to deteriorate, Jefferson embroiled himself more and more in politics. Through so-called committees of correspondence, the different colonies began to communicate with one another. Even war with the French and Indians on their western frontiers had been unable to unite the separate colonies by the actions of the British Parliament. In Pennsylvania, a Quaker named John Dickinson published letters from a farmer in Pennsylvania, arguing that the Townshend duties encroached on the rights of the colonists. This convincing little pamphlet converted several prominent colonists over to the side opposing the duties. The cry of, No taxation without representation, began to echo in the streets. There was rioting and civil disobedience as the colonists tired of the duties they believed had been unconstitutionally forced upon them. John Adams' cousin, Samuel Adams, joined Boston businessmen and sometimes smuggler, John Hancock, in leading a group which dubbed themselves the Sons of Liberty. The Sons stirred up as much trouble for the British as they could, and by 1770, the Crown had stationed some 4,000 British troops in Boston, a soldier for every four residents, to try and quell the dissent by physical force. The tension in the city culminated on a frigid night in March of 1770, when a crowd of rioters slung dirt and rocks at a line of British soldiers. Without orders from their commander, the soldiers opened fire on the crowd and five American colonists fell dead. The soldiers were arrested and tried for what quickly became known throughout the colonies as the Boston Massacre. While Samuel Adams joined the other Sons of Liberty in demanding the conviction of the British soldiers, his cousin, John Adams, was appointed by the royal governor to defend the accused in court. John was successful in his defense of the soldiers, and later called his important role in the case one of the best pieces of service I have ever rendered for my country. The British Parliament sought to ease tensions before things spiraled too far out of control and eliminated all of the Townshend duties except the tax on tea. They did lower the tea tax, But this was not done to benefit the colonists. The real aim of lowering the tea tax was to give the East India Company a monopoly on the American tea trade by undercutting their rivals. Those rivals included both legal merchants and smugglers. The real rub, however, came when the East India Company made no secret that they were shipping inferior tea to the colonies. The idea of being forced to pay a tax on cheap tea enraged the colonists. And when ships of the East India Company arrived in the ports of New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston, they were either turned away or impounded. However, the governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Hutchinson, stood firm, and when ships from the East India Company arrived in Boston Harbor, he ordered them unloaded. Bostonians were already irate after Benjamin Franklin leaked correspondence demonstrating that Governor Hutchinson was collaborating with the Crown and Parliament to assert the rights of the colonists, now with the governor actively standing with the East India Company against his own colony, many colonists believed drastic measures were needed. On December 16, 1773, a group of men disguised as Indians boarded the ships and dumped the tea overboard and what has become known as the Boston Tea Party. While the actual identity of the perpetrators is still not officially known to this day, it is widely suspected that the men were the Sons of Liberty led by Samuel Adams. The British King and Parliament were outraged as what they saw as insolent behavior from disloyal subjects. Their hot-headed, An overbearing response to the Boston Tea Party will go down in history as one of the world's great blunders. For had the British government kept cooler heads, the American Revolution would likely never have happened. The Boston Tea Party was committed by only a handful of troublemakers, but Parliament's furious response was to punish the entire Massachusetts colony by issuing what they referred to as the Coercive Acts. The colonists, however, referred to them as the Intolerable Acts in an illustration of the new relationship the Acts pretended between England and her colonies. The first of these acts closed the port at Boston until the colonists reimbursed the East India Company for the tea. The Massachusetts Government Act abrogated the Massachusetts colony's charter and appointed General Thomas Gage, George Washington's old ally in the French and Indian War, as the colony's military governor. Furthermore, town meetings would not be allowed without Gage's consent, and the king would appoint members of the colony's executive council rather than allow their election by the colonists. The Impartial Administration of Justice Act allowed British officials charged with a crime in the colonies to return to England for their trial. Finally, the Parliament passed the Quartering Act. In order to bring Massachusetts to heel, British soldiers were moved from the frontier into Boston, where they took up residence in people's private homes. In defiance of the Intolerable Acts, the members of the Massachusetts Committees of Correspondence met in the city of Boston in the county of Suffolk to draft the Suffolk Resolves. The Resolves rejected the Intolerable Acts and resolved to among other things, engage in civil disobedience, refuse to pay taxes, raise colonial militias, and boycott all British goods until the acts were repealed. It was at this point that Americans began to drink more coffee and boycott English tea. In solidarity with their Massachusetts cousins, the other colonies joined the rejection of the Intolerable Acts. The committees of correspondence furiously organized the colonies, for resistance to the British government's abuse of power. The Maryland Committee called for a Congress of the entire continent to meet. Thus, in September of 1774, the first Continental Congress met in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. George Washington attended the Congress as a delegate from Virginia, while John and Samuel Adams attended as delegates from Massachusetts. The Suffolk Resolves were delivered to the Congress by a Boston man named Paul Revere, and the Congress drafted resolutions in response. While the resolutions shied away from calling for the use of military force, the other colonies agreed to support Boston in opposition if force were used against her. The Congress also drafted a Declaration of Rights, claiming the rights of the colonies were derived from the law of nature, the British Constitution, and the colonial charters. Perhaps most importantly, they agreed to meet again in the spring of 1775. When the British Parliament received word of this so-called Continental Congress, meeting in open defiance of their authority, they declared the American colonies to be in rebellion against the crown. General Gage was ordered to nip the rebellion in the bud by arresting the members of the Congress. The General warned Parliament that such a move would likely spark a war between England and her colonies. Lord Dartmouth, Secretary of State for the Colonies, issued a lengthy response explaining to Gage that it would be better to start a conflict now before the onset of a riper state of rebellion. Gage had reason to suspect that two towns not far from Boston, Lexington and Concord, were stocking arms. In April of 1775, he received intelligence that the Sons of Liberty leaders Samuel Adams and John Hancock were hiding in Lexington. He ordered his men to march on Lexington and then Concord, seize any stores of arms and ammunition and capture the rebel leaders Adams and Hancock. Before we continue, I wanted to pause and take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast. I realize that you have a lot of options to occupy your time, and I'm truly grateful and humbled that you chose Home of the Brave. As you can imagine, it has taken a lot of time, energy, and money to create a podcast such as this, and I really need your support. Please share it with your friends, subscribe, and write a review. Also, I'd like to ask you to purchase the ebook that this podcast is based on. You can find Home of the Brave, Book 1, The Republic by Christopher Vale, that's V-A-L-E at amazon.com or on my website at christophervale.net I have two more books that I hope to write and record as podcasts to tell the story of America up through the end of the Cold War but I won't be able to do so without your generous support. Thank you again, and now, back to Home of the Brave. On April 18th, 1775, the British troops raised quietly from their beds in the middle of the night and formed up into ranks in the Boston Common. They were soon boarding boats and rowing to Lechmere Point in East Cambridge. The water at the point was too shallow for the boats to land, and the soldiers were forced to wade ashore in knee-high water. Once ashore, they formed up in columns and waited for provisions to arrive. It was not until 2 o'clock in the morning that the Redcoats finally began their march toward Lexington and Concord. The British hoped to catch the rebels by surprise, but the Sons of Liberty had lookouts watching for them. Paul Revere and other riders had been dispatched from Boston as soon as the troops formed up in the common Seeing two lanterns hung to indicate that the British would be coming by sea, Revere rode across the water to Charlestown, where he mounted his horse and galloped off into the night on his famous ride, rousing Samuel Adams and John Hancock and warning the colonists in Lexington that the Redcoats are coming! Adams and Hancock fled Lexington before the British troops arrived to arrest them. Meanwhile, Captain John Parker, commander of the Lexington militia, assembled some 130 men on Lexington Green in the frigid night. After shivering in the cold for an hour, with no sign of the British, Captain Parker dismissed his men to go inside and warm themselves. When the drums sounded later that morning, just over half of the men returned to the Green. As the sun began to rise, the militia formed up into two lines— as they nervously watched six companies of British regulars march onto the field in battle formation, the roll of the drums splitting the morning air. A group of British officers galloped across the green toward the Lexington men, shouting at them to, Lay down your arms, you damned rebels, and disperse! Captain Parker was not a fool. He realized that he and his men would be slaughtered if they remained and ordered the militia to disperse. The Lexington men began to fall out, But they did not lay down their arms. Damn you! cursed the British commander Pitcairn. Why don't you lay down your arms? Damn them! shouted another officer. We will have them! What happened next was later described by poet Ralph Waldo Emerson as the shot heard round the world. No one knows who fired first. The Americans blamed the British, and the British blamed the militia. Regardless, someone fired, and once the shot rang out, the order was given to the British troops to open fire. Two volleys cut through the men of Lexington before Pitcairn could stop the massacre. Eight colonists lay dead with another ten wounded. The sum of the return fire from the militia resulted in nothing more than a single British soldier being grazed in the leg. Having decimated the militia at Lexington, the British troops formed back up into columns and marched out of the small Massachusetts town toward Concord. Word of the massacre at Lexington and the approaching Redcoats spread quickly through the countryside. Minutemen from the surrounding areas began to converge on Concord to meet the British troops and avenge their fallen brothers. The militiamen were hiding when the British finally reached Concord. The Redcoats began searching the town for munitions, but after several hours, they had not found anything. While they searched, more and more militia arrived, reinforcing those colonials already there. Frustrated that they had not found what they had come for, the British set fire to the courthouse and several other buildings. Enraged and fearful that the Redcoats would burn down the entire town, the militia finally marched out to face them. The militiamen assaulted two companies of badly positioned British troops, devastating their ranks and sending them retreating in panic. The two companies caught up with the main British force and the army began to march back toward Boston. It was a long march along the road to Lexington. While the British were searching Concord, militiamen from near and far took up positions along the road, hiding in the trees and behind rocks. The Redcoats marched back to Lexington under nearly constant fire, and by the time they reached the town, were in complete disarray. To their relief, a thousand fresh British troops reinforced them in Lexington. The reinforced columns left Lexington marching toward Charlestown, more or less unmolested by the militia. However, when they reached the town of Monotomy, they found a force of fresh militia waiting for them. The British were suddenly sandwiched between the fresh militia in front of them and the Concord militia behind them. The fighting was intense as the British troops fought for their survival in hand-to-hand combat. Angry and unleashed, The redcoats turned on the civilians, attacking the townspeople, looting stores, and burning houses and shops. They finally fought their way out of monotony and eventually reached safety at Charlestown just as the sun was setting. The toll for the British had been extremely high. 270 dead or wounded. American losses were just over a third as many. This was the opening battle of the American Revolutionary War and it gave the British a taste of what was to come. They had completely underestimated the colonists, but on the road to Concord, they learned that they were not simply putting down a rebel force, but were fighting an entire population. The British would soon discover how important of a role American passion and moral fortitude would play in the coming struggle. The British Parliament was shocked by the bloodbath and did not know what to do. The men who had killed so many British troops were Englishmen, after all. The colonists in North America had been loyal British subjects for nearly two centuries. William Pitt suggested that the colonies be given dominion status. The king and parliament would still have ultimate sovereignty over them, but the colonists would mostly govern themselves and, more importantly, tax themselves. As an alternative, Pitt suggested allowing the colonists to have a representative in Parliament. Edmund Burke suggested that they simply remove the taxes, let things go back to the way they had been before. All of these suggestions were turned down. While Parliament met in London to try and figure out what to do next, the Second Continental Congress met in Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin joined the Pennsylvania delegation. John Hancock joined John and Samuel Adams on the Massachusetts delegation. George Washington, Patrick Henry, and Richard Henry Lee returned for the Virginia delegation and were joined by Thomas Jefferson. The mood of the delegates had changed as the crisis in Boston had deepened. There were stark divisions with some colonists wanting independence and war, while others were much more cautious. But our leading cast of characters had finally assembled, and together they would plot a course that would change the history of the world Forever. Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at Christophervale.net and Amazon.com.